0: Welcome back to the Two Top Podcast, everyone. Due to recent circumstances, we are all stuck at home following social distancing laws due to COVID-19. Now, because of that, that gives us the opportunity to record at home. So we do apologize for the audio quality. It's not up to the usual Two Top standards, but we are doing the best we can. So please come and listen to this episode of Two Top and Hey, maybe you'll just learn a thing or two. Enjoy. So, welcome back to the Two Top Podcast, uh, Quarantine Edition. You know, happy to be back. <laughs> due to the fact that we're well, we can't go to the studio and we have to do everything remote. We thought, well, might as well just get a bunch of friends and record episodes with them because they don't have to go anywhere. They can do it from home. Everybody's podcast sounds like it's being recorded in their basement, so you know, if ours does too, it's
1: fine. (laughs) Mine is being recorded in my basement, so I'm very happy about that. It's a really quiet place. It's a good place to start. So So... Tommy, I felt like since
0: you're the guest, would you want to start us off talking about what you got?
1: Yeah, I can start us off. Um, Originally, my idea for my topic was going to be pretty narrow, but then I realized it may be kind of repetitive for... People have seen the content, and anyone older kind of already knows the story. So I decided to kind of broaden it up. I originally was going to talk about DB Cooper. Um, Do you know DB Cooper? Yeah, I I
0: love DB Cooper.
1: Yeah, so that was my fear when I picked it that I was going to pick DB Cooper, but then like, if everyone already knows who DB Cooper is, or doesn't know who DB Cooper is, we're running problems. I mean, I spend a lot of time on the internet, so like, that's why I know DB Cooper. I just can't get my head around the story. And for any listeners that don't know the story, um, a man on uh, Thanksgiving Eve 1971, he wrote down D.B. Cooper on his plane ticket. He then went on the plane ticket, uh, I think north of Seattle, for a 30 minute bound flight. He sat in the back, ordered a bourbon soda. The flight took off. He um, was in a seat in the very back and he asked the flight attendant to sit down next to him. He then used the phone call, the phone in the back of the plane showed a bomb and hijacked the plane, um, Plane then landed. From the back, he used the phone and the uh, flight attendant to help him hijack the plane. He ended up getting, I think, $200,000 in marked bills from the Seattle bank that were just set aside for this kind of situation, because why not have some hostage money on hand? (laughs) Uh, He kept some of the flight flight people in. Most people got off the flight without knowing it got hijacked. then he demanded to be flown to Mexico City. They then compromised on Reno or Las Vegas because they couldn't fly to Mexico City. And before they arrived to their destination, he had jumped out the back on the parachutes he got. And they don't know if he survived or died. No one knows what happens to him. They don't even know if D.B. Cooper is his real name. There's tons of conspiracy theories on the internet, but they never found him or the money. Um, so I think he survived, Thomas what what do you think on the subject
0: i think well i love the db cooper story because it's really something that could not happen these days is really something that happens back in the days that you'd walk up to an airport and say you know what i'll one ticket please and then you sit down you're smoking your cigar on the plane like it was
1: the fact that they don't even have a picture of him is what i find funny (laughs) It's, it's like a drawn-up wanted poster. I think it's from the Wild West. But it's in 1971. Like, it's not a crazy amount of time ago. Like, at that point, we landed on the moon. Yeah, we landed on the moon, but we didn't have, like, a CCTV, like, in the airport. But um, but you bring that up. That just wouldn't happen now. And so that leads me into the broader spectrum of my topic. Um, In the period of 1968 to 19... 72, a five-year period, there's 326 hijacked attempts. Ooh. <laughs> one every 5.6 days. Sometimes there's two plane hijackings a day. And they're not coordinated. There's just so many of them. There's so many of them. And then when you break it down, of that 326, 72 were destination hijackings. Which what like, does that people- mean? someone would hijack a plane and demand that the pilot take them somewhere um of those seven oh wait no not 72 there was um there was so many but there was 90 to cuba um for the transportation attempts of that 326 hijacking attempts i wonder why But it's not even just people fleeing Cuba, which was my like initial thing, like, oh, Cuba doesn't let people leave. People are gonna like hijack planes in Cuba to get to Miami. But people would also hijack planes to get to Cuba from America, um, politically motivated people, which I just found super interesting and like so foreign to me. And Wikipedia just links the FCC pages that give the hijacking attempts. So a lot of these attempts don't have a lot of information on it. And I really want to know what's going through these hijackers' minds when they hijack a flight from Birmingham to go to Cuba. Like, what makes you think, you know what, this
0: is the type of hijacking I'm doing. Like, I'm not in it for ransom. I'm not in it for destruction. I just want the pilot to land somewhere else. It's almost like someone's just upset with their ticket and they're like, well, I got on the plane to go here, so take me here
1: yeah no like um there's the, the, some pretty funny ones like on um uh, like here's one of three people who successfully hijacked um a flight from birmingham um and then they demand to go to like a bunch of places they involve cleveland ohio knoxville shanatoga toronto and then finally agreed on cuba with two million dollars in ransom
0: okay the first um, couple you said were all in the north and then the last one that they settled on is cuba all the way in the
1: south it's like they realized halfway through the hijacking that they would be arrested in any location that's not cuba yeah maybe that's why they all pick cuba it's like oh
0: well they're not going to arrest us there so we might as well go down there they threatened
1: to crash the plane into oak ridge nuclear installations which is also wild and would have been a something we would have all learned about if they did actually do that
0: i think the hijacking attempts from that time period would go down a little bit if one of them flew into a nuclear facility
1: and so they eventually landed on a foam covered runway in havana And two of the people were sentenced to 20 years in Cuba, the other one 15. And um, later they then returned to the United States to face more charges against it. Like, what's
0: the point of this?
1: Like, where are they getting out of this? A man wrote a book um, about it. I think it was called Terror in the Skies. And he then links it to how we view school shooters. As these people would see like a glorious crime, they would kind of stop caring, and like he kind of likens it to the school shooter mentality that a lot of people have um, nowadays. Um, I both sound like pretty terrible crime. They they don't
0: they that still doesn't like give it a very very good reason. But <laughs>
1: well, yeah, but the heyday ended because the United States and Cuba made a treaty to like. Extradite hijackers on both sides because they were pissed at hijackers from both sides, and both countries had this problem. That's so bizarre. That's such a weird
0: period of time. Could you imagine being a passenger on that flight and then, like, hearing over the radio, it's like, sorry, guys, we're going to Cuba. They hijacked the plane again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the United States actually planned to create a fake Havana airport in Florida that would look like Havana Havana, from, like, coming up to it so that they could park hijacked planes in America secretly. That's Just so like, much
0: work. That would be the biggest <laughs> conspiracy because, like, once one person, like, blows the fuse that, hey, that airport is actually a fake Havana, you know? I mean, I guess there wasn't a lot of social boards, you know, all these hijackers chatting on the internet. <laughs>
1: Yeah, like, if they don't tell you at your local library, you're just not going to learn about it. Yeah. And <laughs> so how well read advisor. how well read is a hijacker?
0: Well, what's interesting, I think going back to D.B. Cooper real quick, like, right now we talked about a bunch of people who landed. What's interesting about his story is he was never caught, and he jumped out the back of the plane. Um, The, the plane was a... Uh, was a... It was an older plane that had the, it had a staircase in the middle that would drop down. So you just like jump out the middle of the back of the plane.
1: Yeah. Boeing 727. It was like one of the last ones with the, uh, with like the staircase. So you didn't need the, uh, what, what is it called when you board the plane on the stairs? Um, Whatever it is, you wouldn't yeah. need it.
0: It had built in stairs, but he just like jumped out the back of the plane and no one found him.
1: They had the dollar bill numbers in the newspaper telling people if they saw dollar bills to check this list in the newspaper. That's crazy. But but they never found the dollar bills either. (laughs) They found 5,000 of them buried in the sand by some river in Seattle. And they decided they couldn't. Well, by they, I mean, conspiracy theorists on the internet. I'm not sure about what the FBI's take on it was, but, um, they they don't think that the bills could have just naturally floated there in that condition. Uh, because people did tests on the rubber bands, and they decided that the rubber bands would break down in water in that amount of time. But this was only discovered in like 2009 because the money was found in the 90s. So they then needed the same amount of time period going forward to see if the rubber bands would break. So uh, some dude on the internet bought that brand of rubber bands, soaked them in like water and sand for like 10 years and they all broke and he was like couldn't be this <laughs> that's such a long process
0: to get an answer but <laughs> i mean it works
1: i'm glad there's people out there that are just like willing to do that kind of experiment because that's are, really funny
0: and those are the people who are like dedicated to this conspiracy theory you know starting an experience an experiment for 10 years to find out if something was buried or not
1: Imagine wild. being a 10-year-old in the Northeast, I mean, in the Northwest, like, when this happens. Like, that would be all you could think about.
0: Yeah, you, you came Me like, if you were a young young kid who, like, would go play in the woods with your friends, because I'm sure that's all they did in the 70s, you know, party by the moon tower. Um, You'd want to try to find, I'm sure you'd see it in the newspaper and be like, oh my god, let's go find this guy's money.
1: <laughs> it does make me sad that the bills never recirculated. I would love if, like, 30 years later, they started finding, like, one or two at, like, gas stations or stuff. That would have like, made me happy.
0: So far into circulation now that they're all over the U.S., that, like, there's a chance that you have a D.B. Cooper dollar in your wallet.
1: Yeah, like, if you could buy them on the internet, it's, like, all 200000 got out eventually. I think, like, that's that, that would be a really weird piece
0: of conspiracy memorabilia, but I'd love to have a bill from that marked stash.
1: It's probably like an illegal bill. Um, oh yeah, oh absolutely. Because <laughs> there are some illegal bills. Um, I think it's like a 1932 double eagle. Half is interesting. Just made a video on it. Uh, the only person that got one was like the king of Egypt, but the Treasury Department like made a made an error on the export thing. So Egypt just has an illegal coin.
0: Oh, nice. <laughs> uh. Well, so you talk a lot about conspiracies and flying and all this hijacking, and it really kind of reminds me of what we've been doing recently. So, transitioning, using this like as the best segue I can get, um, <laughs> recently we've been playing a lot of a game called Civilization Six.
1: Yeah, 50, 51 hours in the last 14 days. So I'd I mean, say I've played a lot of it.
0: Since last, it's... From the past seven days, the amount of that game I've played is astronomical. I mean, it's a great game. We play it with friends. Do you know, by the way, that game came out in 2016? It is
1: five years old. (laughs) The series itself, I think, is like 25 years old.
0: It is. And you know what's funny? So you know what the full game of Civ... We just call it Civ 6, but do you know what the full name of the game is?
1: Sid Meier Civilization Six.
0: Do you know who Sid Meier is? I don't. Well, <laughs> I thought we should learn because we keep playing his games on hours on end.
1: <laughs> who is this man? So, I, I do know I do know that he doesn't do stuff with them anymore. but I didn't know who he was in the beginning so that information wasn't helpful to me. <laughs> so Sid Meier, is he's a
0: Canadian Swiss man who actually has Canadian and Dutch citizenship. And he actually went to college in Michigan for computer science. Who would have guessed? But right after school, he went into designing computers, like computer software for cash registers. And he bought an Atari 800 in 1981. And like the rest is history. So he's playing this game, playing games on his Atari as a computer science guy. And he's like, computer science could really help game design. Who, you know, who would guess? So, he opened up a studio with his partner, Bill Steely, and they started making games. And it was actually a lot of flight simulators. So, then in 1987, they make a game, you know, they want to change it up. They have a big following with flight simulators. So, then they try to switch it up and they make a game called Pirates.
1: Mm-hmm. But,
0: you know, to kind of get, like, a better, a better I guess, branding for themselves... They actually named the game after the guy who designed it, Sid Meier. So it's called Sid Meier's Pirates, and it's the first game to start having his name tied with it. So that's such I... a
1: weird thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it is. But they
0: there's a nice little explanation here about it. So they later explained that the inclusion of his name was because of the dramatic departure of design from the game Pirates in comparison to all their flight simulators. So his partner, uh. Bill Steely decided that they should improve the company's branding to make the people who like bought flight simulators more likely to play other games that they made. So apparently they were at dinner with the software publishing association and Robin Williams was there and Robin <sighs> Williams kept like kept them in like conversation and they're having a good time. And then he turned to bill and he was like, you know what? You should put Sid's name on a couple of these boxes and turn them into a star and like that's how that's how the story goes so robin williams helped like really convinced these guys to put sid Myers on the name of the games that we've been playing
1: i just assumed it was some historian that was like popular in pop culture like 25 years ago no.
0: like if some
1: if it was like i just imagined he was like the dan carlin of 25 years ago <laughs> um, the guy that makes hardcore history yeah. he's the only historian i can think of and he's not even a historian
0: yeah so like now they just he puts his names on everything
1: it's funny going from a flight simulator to um i guess like since they're both kind of simulations but i would expect them to kind of come from like different kinds of people i wouldn't expect the same person to be interested in both
0: so looking at his game library you know he does do a lot in the first the next game that he includes his name is Sid Meier's Railroad Tycoon.
1: Oh, that's but, pretty fun. Is there any relation to the, uh, like ro- ro- uh, roller coaster tycoon? Yeah. So,
0: he, well, all those tycoon games that was with, um, that was with uh this other company, and then, it went to Pop Tap or. Top, Pop, Tap? Let me see if I have the name. But anyway, uh, they then went off and they continued the games. And then actually later, 2K bought Pop Tap. Oh, Pop Top Softwares and then folded it into Sid Meier's company, which is the Fire Axis, mm-hmm. which is that lovely logo in the beginning of the game. <laughs> um, so then he became responsible for the railroad tycoon games again so like he started the game and then it was sold off to someone else and then like through corporate stuff like he's now back in charge of this game
1: he started as well they probably had some mediocre games in the middle where they're like we need that we need the original management <laughs> back so we're here to really talk about
0: Civ and you know we know Civ 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, they're up at 6 now <laughs> Um, but there's a lot more other Civs that I thought you'd find really funny. Um, there's Civ Antietam and Gettysburg, which are, like, you know how in Pokemon there's, like, two different versions? There's, um... Yeah. Sid Meier's Gettysburg and Antietam is a tactical game where you re-fight the, the Civil War
1: battles of those eras. I bought an expansion pack for Civ 5 where you can play in the Civil War and you can, like... I played as a North, and I lost terribly. Which is funny, because, like, how do you lose this war as a war as the North? But I did.
0: He The stuff that they create is, like, really impressive. And it's all, like, based off this game. Like, he really did make his own game engines. Like, even though his name is on it at this point, he doesn't actually... He's not the lead developers of, like, the past six games. But the the software and the engine that he made all the way back in 1996 he's been like advancing it further and further and like even in 2016 when civ 6 was being developed he like he brought the engine back and everybody at that company like really thinks that's like the source of all of this so he's been thinking about he's been doing this for a long time i think i think that's awesome
1: it's really the perfect game, um, especially when, like, you think back to, like, the Atari era, because I can't imagine a flight simulator on the Atari would be very worth playing, um, just because, like, it, it's going to be so janky and stuff. But you could really just make Civilization into, like, lettered icons. Like, each yeah. tile, you can really dumb it down to the point where I think you could fit, like, a really nice game on a really small data cartridge.
0: And, you know like it's one of those games though. So I guess I should explain it because I tried to explain it to my dad because he wanted to play because he's big into strategy games. And you start with a civilization in the beginning and you work your, you single city. Yeah. A single city with like your one warrior and your one settler. And then you build it up from the stone age all the way up to the modern era. But yeah, we, we say this as like, Oh, like a 45 minute game. Maybe, um, they're hours. It's hours on end. And we play on the fastest speed online.
1: I can't imagine not playing on the fastest speed, but it really is fun to see you go from one little city with no, like nothing cool going on to like an industrial era city where you're like researching the Manhattan project that has like an entertainment district, a commerce district, a Harbor. And like, uh an armory and uh you have like 15 cities in your civilization like it it gets it gets very addicting and very fun as you move through those 10 hours even when you lose it's still like a fun like 10 hour spend which is which is really alien to a lot of people spending 10 hours on a video game i think it relates better to a board game like a dungeon and oh, Dragons yeah. style tabletop game than a traditional video game
0: it's just like it's a game that's really made With love, like they really do care about this game, and I think Sid, Sid Meier, even though he's not the lead developer, like it's still a big part of this. But you know, it's influenced a lot of
1: historians.
0: They haven't released a game since Civ Six.
1: Yeah, well, their their business model is just sending a game, putting out DLCs every year or two. And uh, like milking the one game and the DLCs until it's like borderline unusable. But
0: they've released a game every single every single or every other year since like the eighties until Civ Six, and they haven't released anything in the past five years.
1: I mean, the DLCs are pretty big, <laughs> but yeah. It, I mean, it's kind of nicer that way because I would prefer less games and more DLCs in this kind of game. Considering we play with our friends so much, and the legacy systems would kind of get annoying. Um, yeah. Like if if you couldn't play the one game with other people, it also keeps the price down, which like is nice. It's really
0: if you want to like a lot of people gauge how worth a game is based on like the dollars to hours played. I think. I think Civ Six, which I'm pretty sure I got for twenty bucks, it I've gotten its money's worth easy,
1: real real quick. <laughs> I think I've over a thousand hours played in Civilization Five, and I think I bought it for like fifteen twenty dollars. Which is funny
0: because the game, even though I said it came out five years ago, the base game if you buy it on Steam is sixty dollars.
1: Yeah, well it's also it's also on the consoles which jacks up the price a decent amount because they have to they want to keep their uh price parity but i'm just i really think it's influenced a lot of people into picking like college majors and stuff and i like kind of think about economics sometimes in terms of like a civ game like okay i just (laughs) need to get science and production up science production population all that matters and um it's kind of fun to be like your own little dictator and be able to like choose your country and what you focus on yourself
0: even, even the wonders themselves are pretty interesting because in the game you can build wonders that are in the real world and like for me who's studying architecture i like i see these buildings and i'm like oh that's like really cool that that's included that is like a major part of these civilizations cultures
1: the mayor of Am- of in- in- Istanbul was on um was on twitter and he was like oh you should definitely come to Istanbul and in- i can't say it constantinople <laughs> and um he was like yeah you should come see the hagia Sophia which i know i pronounced wrong but um i was like oh that's in civ it's a religious yeah, that's wonder plus
0: two culture right
1: <laughs> but this brings me to a question i think about every time i play civ and every time i nuke your cities if we get good enough at technology will we get to the point where there will be some peace computer code that feels pain when it's attacked in civilization like, will
0: will there be, like, an AI, like, you can feel the pain of your technology as you're being absolutely riddled by your friend?
1: It's like the, are we living in a simul- simulation question. At a certain point of our technology progressing, will the AI of Civ start to feel pain when you're mean to it?
0: I don't know. The AI right now is feels like they're always in pain when I'm just, like, doing my own thing. <laughs>
1: existence is pain for the ai of civ
0: that's actually a really funny thing as well there was a glitch i think civ 3 or civ 4 where uh gandhi would they tried to make him peaceful and they made his peace number so low that it went negative therefore making him the most violent out of all the civilizations and that's where the meme comes from of like gandhi's gonna nuke you because they screwed up the code (laughs)
1: yeah um democracy lowered your aggression by two and gandhi who's a very peaceful person had a base aggression of one and so the number was stored in 256 uh bit code so it then raised his aggression from where it should be negative one to 255 (laughs) making him like nearly the most aggressive possible um i love india is a nuclear power hey they are so coding errors are so funny because like i'm not a programmer i would definitely be making like a y2k every other day if i was um but it is (laughs) funny to see how like short-sighted some things were
0: yeah but you know what now it's like i'm just thinking about civ and i'm like wow
1: i can't wait to play
0: more i can't wait to load up another game (laughs)
1: after this call let's do it (laughs)
0: Let's get it going. But, you know, I think that's a good place to end on today.
1: Thank you to have me on this Zoom call. I had a great time from my basement. I hope my audio reflects it.
0: (laughs) It sounds great. Thank you for coming along and taking the time out of your day to, you know, talk about some hijacking and some SIV. Because, I mean, (laughs) what what more to spend quarantine doing?
1: I'm going to get lost on a few Wikipedia rabbit holes now again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for calling, and Thank you for being on this episode. All right. See you later. Two top. <laughs> see ya. The two top podcast this week was created by Thomas Lance and edited by Thomas Lance. The music from this episode comes from Malia Roosevelt and his music for podcasting. If you'd like to support the show, please follow us on Patreon. You can find us at Two Top Podcast. Any donation helps, and we even have a couple cool perks going along with it. You can find us on social media on Instagram and Twitter, and we even have a website, twotoppodcast.com. For any general inquiries, you can send us an email over to twotoppodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And this was Two Top. We hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you guys next week for another Two Topics.